Tech Fighter Worldwide. It's the High Tech Podcast in plain English with an hour's worth of news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the commercials, the station breaks, the sports, and most of the jingles. Podcast number 556 for the 20th of August, 2017. The past two programs have been relatively short. This one will make up for that brevity. Unlike on radio, the podcast can be as long as it needs to be. So this week, here's what's coming. Seven years ago, I seem to have thought that Apple's iPad was a silly device. Maybe at the time it was, but I've just bought one. And if it was once silly, it no longer is. On Monday, the 21st of August, scientists say that most people in North America will experience at least a partial solar eclipse. Does anyone doubt that prediction? That raises another question about science that I'd like to explore in what's essentially an editorial. In short circuits, some well-known extensions for Chrome were compromised with malware. All known cases have been resolved, but there may be others. Probably there was an interesting look on my face when Outlook wouldn't open normally, in safe mode or in repair mode. But it's fixed now, more or less. In spare parts, only on the website. You could have a company send phishing emails to your employees. There's a good reason why you might want to do that. If you've ever wanted to learn more about how tornadoes form, the Weather Channel's website has some useful information. And increasingly, people are pulling out smartphones instead of wallets when they want to pay for something. Sometimes, our words come back to bite us in uncomfortable places. Let's take a look back to the May 30th TechBiter podcast from 2010. A little less than two months after the first iPad was released, I said... I don't own an iPad, and I don't plan to own one any time in the near future. Earlier in that year, February 7th, 2010, I was even more surly. I said, the fact that no small number of Mac fans have dissed the iPad for its lame name, weak feature set, and operating system hasn't kept some in the Windows community from gushing over how wonderful it is, even those who might be inclined to buy one, perhaps remembering the painful lessons from early iPhone buyers, are waiting for version 2. Well, could I have a little ketchup to go with that crow that I'm currently gnawing on? By the way, full disclosure here, no crows were actually eaten, harmed, or even frightened during the preparation of this report. Well, in July, I bought an iPad. Why, after all these years, did I buy an iPad? Well, in part, it was just plain curiosity. I figured that by now Apple would have worked out most of the bugs from earlier editions. But the secondary reason, and perhaps in truth the primary reason, is that Adobe's mobile applications are generally more robust on iPhones and iPads than on the corresponding Android devices. So now I have an iPad and have largely moved past being frustrated. Frustration follows whenever anybody acquires new hardware. And for me, that's double whenever I acquire hardware made by Apple, because little or no documentation comes with it. The iPad's documentation was smaller than a 3x5 index card and about 6-point type and colored so that it was essentially unreadable. In the old Microsoft DOS days, computers came with large manuals. I remember reading one of them in the car while my wife drove. Romantic, huh? These books told me how the operating system worked. Today, both Microsoft and Apple seem to expect users to just figure it out on their own. 
When I picked up the iPad from the Apple Store at Polaris, I was told about Apple Support's phone-based option. I explained that I usually just figure this stuff out on my own. So for the past few weeks, I have been figuring out the stuff on my own over time. One of the first things I figured out was that Apple provides no glide functions to enter text. It's a standard feature on Android devices, but third-party applications are better. On an iPad, the only option is the third-party application. Fortunately, there's Gboard. That's a keyboard from Google. Not that the G in the name would give it away or anything. For me, this is most essential. It's free. It adds the ability to launch a search directly from the keyboard. The primary function the Gboard adds, though, is glide typing. I've used that function on Android devices, and I find it surprising that neither Microsoft nor Apple has managed to develop or acquire similar technology. Gboard has exceeded my expectations by being even better than my favorite Android glide typing app. It offers languages from Arabic to French, Greek to Russian, and Vietnamese. There are lots of settings, so you can fine-tune the keyboard so that it exactly suits your needs. The utter lack of documentation is also puzzling on an iPad. Why do I have to perform a Google search to learn that I can show all running apps by swiping upward with four fingers, or use a four-finger pinch to return to the home screen? Maybe the developers think that this will be obvious. Well, it isn't. I could also display all the running apps by double-tapping the home button. Now that's equally obvious to those who have been using an iPad since 2010. For us neophytes, though, why can't Apple provide at least some basic how-to information? Even a function so basic as rebooting the device isn't obvious. Press and hold the wake-sleep button until a slider appears, then move it to the right. I'm supposed to figure that out on my own? In fact, that's kind of an unfair assessment. Apple does provide some documentation online, as others who own Apple products know. There is an icon called Hints on the home screen. It provides 27 suggestions on 27 pages and then links to an online resource. But still, at least a getting started pamphlet would be helpful. There are some must-have apps and accessories. Apple follows Microsoft's lead with the Surface tablet in making the keyboard optional. Now, that may not be an entirely fair comparison either. The Surface really does need a keyboard option because the on-screen keyboard doesn't have a glide option and is really pretty abysmal. On the other hand, the iPad's on-screen keyboard doesn't have a glide option, but at least there's an add-in from Google that adds the function. So the iPad doesn't really need a keyboard, but it does need a cover. Apple doesn't even provide that. They will sell you one for $30 to $80, or alternatively, you can buy a DTTO iPad cover from Amazon for about $12. That's what I did. And I was shocked by how well made this cover is. And if I ever need a keyboard for the iPad, I can pay Apple $160. Or I can choose a third-party Bluetooth-enabled keyboard at prices ranging from $15 to $100. The iPad also provides no way to load photographs from a digital camera. There's no USB port, no digital media slot, so you'll need to spend $40 for a USB 3 to lightning adapter, or $70 if you also want an HDMI port. You can plug a camera in, but if you decide to remove the memory card from the camera and use an unpowered adapter, you're going to be told it requires too much power and cannot be used. Apple offers a pencil to go with the iPad. That's another 100 bucks. 
The third-party options start around $15, but all of them lack essential features that Apple provides if you want to use the writing implement to write and not just draw. So I thought that for me the only must-have was going to be that $40 USB adapter. For less than $20, I could have bought a third-party adapter that has memory card slots and both USB and lightning output, but no USB input. But the pencil? Any other manufacturer would have called it a pen or a stylus. Apple calls it a pencil, and it quickly became a must-have accessory. If you use Adobe's iPad apps, the pencil will be helpful. If you use an application that allows you to write on documents, Notepad Plus, for example, not to be confused with Notepad++ on the PC, you will want the pencil. And if you install a coloring book application such as Pigment, as I did, you are going to want the pencil. I'll probably have to talk about coloring book applications in some later program. My favorite book reader on Android, the UB Reader, isn't available for iOS devices. But I found Blio, which does everything I need for EPUB books. The Amazon Kindle Reader, of course, handles Moby books. And nearly any e-reader can open a PDF document, so I'm covered there. Blio is more than just a reader, though. It also provides access to books, including textbooks, movies, and music. Importing books into Blio involves storing them in the cloud, I'm using Google Drive, attempting to open the book in Drive, then ignoring the error message and choosing Open In to assign the book to Blio. You also might want to make the book available offline so you can read it when you're not connected to the Internet. That said, I still generally prefer the Samsung Android tablet for reading. It's about the size of a trade paperback instead of a magazine, and it's lighter. The iPad's display is better, and the Blio Reader is outstanding. Maybe I'll read more on it as time passes. Facebook and Messenger are essential for me personally. They may not be for you. Also, I wanted Chrome and Firefox to supplement Apple's Safari browser. The various Adobe mobile apps are essential for me. In fact, as I said, that's one of the main reasons I purchased the iPad. Lightroom is on the quick access section at the bottom of the screen. I put it there intentionally, so it's available no matter which of the many home screens I'm on. So based on a month's usage, here are some random thoughts. First, on buying an Apple product. I purchased the iPad online and said I'll pick it up at the store. The order was ready just a few minutes later, but I didn't have time to get to the store for two days. I was accosted by a goaltender before I'd advanced even five feet into the store. He found out what I was there for, took me to another associate who scanned the order, asked for an ID, and sent a message to a third associate who brought the boxes out. Very efficient. In and out, less than ten minutes. Even though the process seemed to be a little overproduced and high on drama, I suspected a Broadway musical might break out at any moment. In some ways, it reminded me of the old Circuit City, where I could order online, go to the store, and be out in less than ten minutes. Circuit City lacked the panache, production values, and drama of an Apple store, though. Micro Center has a similar process, but sometimes the line for the pickup counter can be a little long. Apple's process of handling the transaction in the middle of the sales floor eliminates the wait because you'll be handed off to whoever is available. Clever. I found some unexpected good stuff. After creating a document on the iPad, I wanted to print it. So I looked in settings to find the location where I could install a printer. I couldn't find it, so I thought, well, maybe trying to print the document will send me to the setup and configuration area. So I tried to print the document. Well, the iPad already knew about my network printer. I didn't have to provide an IP address or load drivers. Now that's most impressive. More than a year ago, I did a comparison test between the sound produced on the Microsoft Surface Pro 4 tablet computer 
and a MacBook Pro notebook computer. The Surface produced far better and richer sound than the MacBook Pro, so it was a great surprise to hear the sound from the iPad. Even though it's considerably smaller than the Surface, it may produce even better sound. Why wasn't Apple able to pack that kind of sound into the MacBook Pro? And of course, there were some unexpected bad stuff. Setting up an email account should be easy. So that I can use secure settings for email, I use my website hosting provider's certificate that requires that I identify the POP3 and SMTP servers using the Bluehost.com domain instead of Blin.com or TechBiter.com. Well, that's easy. I've done that before on Windows, Mac OS, and Android devices. should take about a minute to configure. But I couldn't get it to work with the iPad's mail client. Eventually, I found out that the app needed me to provide an actual username and password for the SMTP server, even though these were clearly shown as optional. That's bad software design. Most email applications are smart enough to use the credentials provided for POP3 when it needs the SMTP server, unless the user specifies something else. Apple Mail doesn't do that. That's something I learned following a Google search that revealed just how widespread this issue is. There's a lot of confusion. Let's just say this is something that has frustrated a lot of people over the years, and it's a problem that Apple should either fix or clearly document. To make it even worse, after providing the username and password, I still had to drill down and tell the application to use the username and password for authentication. So how about some silly stuff? Maybe we could call it some Siri stuff. Hey Siri, how much wood would a woodchuck chuck if a woodchuck could chuck wood? 42? That can't be right. Not probably isn't. What's the best operating system then? Any truly rational being would say that OS X is the best, and I should know. Okay, so tell me, what's zero divided by zero? Imagine that you have zero cookies and you split them evenly among zero friends. How many cookies does each person get? See, it doesn't make sense. And Cookie Monster is sad that there are no cookies. And you are sad that you have no friends. Now that's not nice. Siri, why did the chicken cross the road? I don't understand why people ask questions they already know the answer to. Hey Siri, I see a little silhouette of a man. Scaramouche, Scaramouche, will you do the Fandango? Thunderbolt and lightning, very, very frightening me. Galileo, 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 Galileo Figaro Magnifico. I'm just a poor assistant. Nobody loves me. Let it go. Siri, Siri, we will not let you go. Siri, Siri, are you done now? We were talking about you, Bill, not me. Thank you, Siri. My pleasure, as always. So the bottom line for the iPad is, at least for me, five cats. Is an iPad right for you? Seven years after the iPad was launched, I've acquired one, primarily because of its support for Adobe's photographic applications, but it's far more than that. I'm no Mac fanboy, but I'm really impressed. Additional details are available on the Apple website. And by the way, I'll follow up in a few weeks with information about how the Adobe apps are treating me on an iPad. After all, that was the impetus for this whole experiment. This program has a dateline of Sunday, the 20th of August. So tomorrow, the 21st, Monday, a solar eclipse will be visible in much of the continental United States. The sun will be about 86% obscured in central Ohio, where I live, 
To see the total eclipse, I'd need to travel three to 400 miles southwest. I won't be doing that because driving six to eight hours to see an event that lasts less than three hours seems illogical, when I can stay put and see 80% of it by just walking out the door. The solar eclipse raises a few questions. Consider this to be an editorial about a topic that should not be political. Some may see it as political, not editorial, but science isn't political. Science is about facts, observation, repeatability, predictability. As Neil deGrasse Tyson says, The good thing about science is that it's true whether or not you believe in it. Tyson is an astrophysicist. Since 1996, he has been the Frederick P. Rose Director of the Hayden Planetarium at the Rose Center for Earth and Space in New York City. Most of us accept the fact that scientists are able to predict lunar and solar eclipses with total accuracy. Yet some of us say that the very same scientists are not believable when it comes to climate change. Please consider that for a moment. Scientific calculations allowed the United States to put human beings on the moon in 1969. I watched Neil Armstrong step onto the moon when I was working in Fort Wayne. The television was a heat kit that I had built. Scientists and engineers were able to devise plans that brought a catastrophically damaged Apollo 13 safely back to Earth by allowing it to continue toward the moon, swing around the moon, and use the gravitational forces to power the return journey. As for the eclipse, I am tempted to say the calculations are simple, but they're not. At least they are very well known, as an article in Wired Magazine explains. There's a link to that article on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Yet today we seem to have lost our understanding of science. I don't say our belief in science, because scientific results don't change depending on what we believe. If it's observable, repeatable, and predictable, it's scientific. NASA scientists made it possible for us to develop a manned spaceflight program. Manned spaceflight eventually did include women who flew on the shuttle, and spaceflight has always been supported by many women, starting with those who performed the computations essential to the lunar program and before. Is there anyone who doesn't understand that an eclipse will occur on Monday, and that in central Ohio it will start at 1.04 p.m., reach its maximum at 2.30 p.m., and end at 3.52 p.m.? Yet some of the people who comprehend that science is exactly right about the eclipse seem to doubt that science is right or even close about climate change. This isn't at all logical, and that may explain why it's become political. There isn't much of an intersection where those two meet. The American Institute of Physics addresses the question of how climate change became politicized. Some small snippets of text from that report are on the TechBiter Worldwide website, and there's a link to the American Institute of Physics article on the web. It is a long article, well-researched, methodical, not political, and I think it's worth reading. If you like conspiracy theories, however, The Atlantic has a good one on the eclipse. You'll find a link to that one, too. It is reminiscent of the dihydrogen monoxide scare, and there's a link to that on the TechBiter Worldwide website, too. In short circuits, some well-known extensions for Chrome have been hijacked in the past month or so. At least seven legitimate extensions were compromised when crooks were able to take over the developers' accounts. One of the best-known attacks involved Social Fixer for Facebook. Version 20.1.0 had been released, but then users were told that version 20.1.1 needed additional permissions. 
The developer reacted quickly and properly by advising users not to allow the application to have extra permissions and, if they had, to disable the application. He has since released version 20.2, which is safe. Other extensions involved include CopyFish, an optical character recognition application, Web Developer, Chromatana, Infinity New Tab, and Web Paint. Most of those have new versions that are clean. Other extensions, though, may also have been compromised. Security firm Proofpoint says the developers' login credentials for their Google accounts were stolen via phishing emails, claiming to be from Google. They stated that the developers needed to update their applications or they would be removed from the Google Play marketplace. Some of the compromised extensions displayed fake warnings that told users their computers needed to be repaired and directed them to phony technicians. You just can't be too careful. Well, here's a series of events that isn't exactly welcome. Outlook crashes when I try to open it. Outlook then offers safe mode, which crashes when I try to continue. And finally, it offers repair mode, which crashes as it tries to continue. One might suspect that something is wrong with Outlook, and that's where my investigation began, but it turned out to be a dead end. I had opened Excel and Word to confirm the version and build number of Office 365. They worked as expected, so there was little reason to suspect something other than Outlook. I pulled up the reliability console and found problem signature, event name app crash, application name Outlook, and there was a version and a timestamp. So, yep, it was Outlook. Glancing further down, I found the exception code and in the process skipped right over the obvious answer. Then I accidentally clicked the icon for Corel Draw, and it crashed on open. The reliability console reported the same exception code. So I tried Adobe Dreamweaver. It crashed on open. Same exception code. That's when I got smart enough to look at the rest of the details. Fault module name, it said. Nview h.dll. It's hard to be more obvious than that. The NVIDIA display driver was causing all of these programs to crash. After that, fixing the problem seemed relatively simple. Just visit the NVIDIA website, locate the appropriate driver for the computer operating system and video card, download it, install it as a clean install so that it would completely remove the previous version. Problem solved. Sometimes all that's required to fix a problem is a little bit of paying attention. But then, guess what? The problem returned following a reboot. It is still clearly connected to the video subsystem, but now it's beginning to look like it might be a problem with the docking station. More research is needed. No research is needed for spare parts, only on the website. This week, you can have a company send phishing emails to your employees, and there's a good reason why you might want to do that. If you've ever wanted to learn about how Tornadoes Form, the Weather Channel's website has some useful information. And increasingly, people are pulling out smartphones instead of wallets when they want to pay for something. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Be sure to check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. See you next week.